Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. And welcome back to the Lotus Underground. I'm MC Owens, and today I'm starting a new series for the podcast on the Noble Eightfold Path. And my plan is to basically do a reading and discussion um, on each of the steps on the Eightfold Path. And so today I'm going to start with the idea or the practice of right view of samyadrishti uh, and then I'll do a recording on right uh, intention or samkalpa, right resolve and then I'll do one on right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and then an eighth on right samadhi or right concentration. Um, and the way that I want to do this is I'm going to uh, choose a sutra, actually a sutta. So one of the um, one of the sutras from the Pali. So a sutta, and um, for each of the steps on the path, I'm going to choose a different sutra or sutta that you know just really speaks to that step on the path. And today I decided to do well since we're going to talk about right view. I decided to do the Right View Sutta. This is called the Samaditi Sutta in Pali, or the Samyakdrishti Sutra in Sanskrit. Um, if you have a collection from, if you have the Majjhima Nikaya, if you have the middle length uh, discourses of the Buddha, uh, particularly if you have the wisdom publication translation by Bhikkhu Nanamoli and Bhikkhu Bodhi, I'm reading from that collection, and so this is sutra number nine in the uh, middle-length discourses, the Majjhima Nikaya. And, you know, what's interesting actually about this sutra is this is one of those sutras where eh, there's no Buddha, or at least, you know, it begins, thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living in Shravasti, in Jeddah's Grove, Anatha Pindika's Park. And there, the Venerable Shariputra addressed the bhikkhus thus, Friend bhikkhus, friend, they replied. And the Venerable Shariputra said this. So before I read any further, and I am going to kind of go through this, um, but before I go through the various sections of this, I do want to just say a few words about drishti, the first step on the Noble Eightfold Path. So, I mean, you might be aware, of course, that the Buddha uses a lot of different similes and metaphors to describe his teachings. And, you know, sometimes he'll describe the teachings in terms of a wheel or in terms of a net, or in this case, the Noble Eightfold Path. So the metaphor is about a path. And I'm the type of person that likes to take the Buddha seriously. And so when he uses a certain metaphor, I like to really wonder about and contemplate why that metaphor. And what I mean is, is that if you've heard of different teachings that are done in wheels, like something that comes to mind is like the 12 link chain of causation, which is kind of circular. 
And the idea of the 12 links of the chain of causation is there's sort of no beginning and end. You just you pick a starting point and you'll come back to where you started. And that's sort of built into the idea of a wheel. Sometimes the Buddha uses a metaphor of a net. And nets can be entrapped and kind of entrap you or get you kind of tripped up in a way. And so nets are always interesting, like the uh, uh, Brahma Jala Sutra, the Sutra on Brahma's net. But this is the Noble Eightfold Path. And if you take that metaphor seriously, a path has a starting point and an ending point. And if you take these as these eight steps on the Noble Eightfold Path, then the idea of right view, samyak drishti, or, or in Pali, and I cannot pronounce Pali at all, by the way, but this samadhiti, it's kind of that lispy, softer samadhiti sutta. But this right view, right drishti, this is the first step on the path. And for me, when I hear that and I think about that, I kind of put it all together, and the way that I think about it is, you know, this word drishti, um, I mean, if you've been listening to the Dharma Doors or listening to the Lotus Underground, we talk about views or drishtis a lot. Um, and, you know, this idea of a view, although the word drishti does mean a gaze or literally a kind of a viewing with the eyes, and you, you might be familiar with the word drishti from like a yoga class. If you're a yoga teacher, when you were doing an asana pose, the teacher might uh, suggest that you settle your drishti on a point on the wall ahead of you. Or if you're doing some sort of pose, uh, you might look at your finger pointed in the air or maybe even gaze at the tip of your nose in a meditative posture. So there is a way that the word drishti is used to talk about vision and the eyes and gazing. But within the Buddhist world here, and in particular as it pertains to the Eightfold Path, a drishti, a view, a view is, is it's more like a worldview in that sense. Um, this, uh, um, a deeper sense about what's going on here. And so it's much, much stronger than an opinion or something like that, because opinions we tend to think of as, as changeable in that way. But what a drishti is, is this a deep, deep set of beliefs about what's going on here. This could be about uh, morality, it could be about aesthetics, it could be about um, life, birth, death, and the afterlife, it could be, um, well, we also, in, in English at least, we often refer to having a political view. Having a political view or a religious view, that's the view that is a drishti. Again, it's kind of like an opinion, but it's stronger than that. Because it's actually, it's the deepest, you know, our deepest understanding about what's going on here in this world. And in a way, all of our actions and all of our behaviors are a byproduct of our view 
in that way. And we all have, in a way, have a different view, so to speak. Um, and there's commonalities among views, of course, whether it's like a scientific worldview or if it's a group of Christians and they have a Christian worldview. So that's their drishti. Scientists have their drishti. And so there are certainly shared drishtis in that way. But the idea is that we all have our own sense about what's going on here, our own worldview, or our own drishti. And so when one sets off on that noble eightfold path, I would suggest that this drishti or this view, the reason why it's the first step is because if you have, well, you know, this is about the right view. This is about samyak drishti. And if you had the wrong view, well, the idea is, is that you would sort of be facing the wrong way. And if you're facing the wrong way, then the next step you take on the path is basically going to be in the wrong direction. So, you know, I'm, I'm speaking metaphorically in that way where I'm, I'm keeping with the metaphor of the path in this way of speaking about directionality in that sense. But I think, or I hope that you know what I mean, which is that this first step on the path is so important because if we have not the right view, then the intentions that we make in the second step and the things that we say in the third step and the things that we do in the fourth step and the livelihood in the fifth step, all of these things, again, they will be going down the wrong road, so to speak. And so it is essential to the practice that one is established in right view. And what is right view? Well, that's why I've chosen the Right View Sutra to discuss today. Uh, so that's my little introduction to the idea of a drishti. So this is about right view. And so in this sutta, the Samadhiti Sutta, Sutra number nine in the Majjhima Nikaya, Shari, Sariputra, he gives, I believe it is 16 different examples of right view. And um, if I can, I'll just kind of, again, I'll finish reading the opening. So the Venerable Sariputra said this to the bhikshus. One of right view, one of right view is said, friends, in what way is a noble disciple one of right view, whose view is straight, who has unwavering confidence in the Dharma and has arrived at this true Dharma? And the bhikshus reply, Indeed, friend, we would come from far away to learn from the Venerable Sariputra the meaning of this statement. It would be good if the Venerable Sariputra would explain the meaning of this statement. Having heard it from him, the bhikshus will remember it. Then, friends, listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, friend, the bhikshus replied. And the Venerable Sariputra said this. So the first example that Sariputra gives of what does it mean to be of right view, the first example he gives is regarding the wholesome and the unwholesome, the kushala and akushala dharma. 
And he says this. He says, When, friends, a noble disciple understands the unwholesome and the root of the unwholesome, the wholesome and the root of the wholesome, in that way they are one of right view, whose view is straight, who has unwavering confidence in the Dharma and has arrived at this true Dharma. And what, friends, is the unwholesome? What is the root of the unwholesome? What is the wholesome? What is the root of the wholesome? Killing living beings is unwholesome. Taking what is not given is unwholesome. Misconduct in sensual pleasures is unwholesome. False speech is unwholesome. Malicious speech is unwholesome. Harsh speech is unwholesome. Gossip is unwholesome. Covetousness is unwholesome. Ill will and hatred are unwholesome. Wrong view is unwholesome. This is called the unwholesome. And what is the root of the unwholesome? Greed is a root of the unwholesome. Hate is a root of the unwholesome. Delusion is a root of the unwholesome. This is called the root of the unwholesome. And what is the wholesome? Abstention from killing living beings is wholesome. Abstention from taking what is not given is wholesome. Abstention from misconduct and sensual pleasures is wholesome. Abstention from false speech is wholesome. Abstention from malicious speech is wholesome. Abstention from harsh speech is wholesome. Abstention from gossip is wholesome. Uncovetedness is wholesome. Non-ill will and hatred is wholesome. Right view is wholesome. This is called the wholesome. And what is the root of the wholesome? Non-greed is a root of the wholesome. Non-hatred is a root of the wholesome. Non-delusion is a root of the wholesome. This is called the root of the wholesome. When a noble disciple has thus understood the unwholesome and the root of the unwholesome, the wholesome and the root of the wholesome, they entirely abandon the underlying tendency to attraction. They abolish the underlying tendency to aversion. They root out the underlying tendency to the view and conceit, I am. And by abandoning ignorance and arousing true knowledge, they here and now make an end of suffering. In this way, too, a noble disciple is one of right view, whose view is straight, who has unwavering confidence in the Dharma, and has arrived at this true Dharma. Right. So that's the end of the first section. And each of these 16 sections, or the next 15 sections, 
they all have the same format, which is that after hearing this, the bhikshus are delighted, but then they say to Shariputra, they say, good friend, the bhikshus delighted and rejoiced in the venerable Shariputra's words. Then they asked him a further question. But friend, might there be another way in which a noble disciple is one of right view, one whose view is straight, one who has unwavering confidence in the Dharma and has arrived at this true Dharma? And Sariputra says, there might be friends. <laughs> and so then Sariputra goes on, when friends, a noble disciple understands ahara, nutriment. That's the second. Now, I want to talk about nutriment. I have a lot to say about this second uh, uh, example of right view that Sariputra gives. But I need to say just a few quick words about how each of these section ends. So the end of the, the first section, when a noble disciple has thus understood the unwholesome, the root of the unwholesome, the wholesome and the root of the wholesome, it says, or Sariputra says, they entirely abandon the underlying tendency to attraction. They abolish the underlying tendency to aversion and they extirpate or root out the underlying tendency to the view and conceit, I am. So I just want to make you know clear the entirely abandoning the underlying tendency to attraction, abolishing the underlying tendency to aversion, and rooting out the underlying tendency to the view and conceit I am. But that last one regarding the third klesha, regarding the third root, this idea of rooting out, extirpating, the underlying tendency to the view, to the drishti, and the conceit, and this is sort of a, an air quote where it says, it's a rooting out of the conceit, I am. That, of course, is a reference to the self, to the idea of an ego or, or an ego-centered, self-centered drishti or a view. And so... Although Sariputra is saying that what it means to be of right view, in this section he's saying, what it means to be of right view is to understand what is wholesome and what causes that, and to understand what is unwholesome and to understand what causes that. Clarity about those things constitutes right view, according to this first section. However, if you were to read you know, standard dictionary definitions of right view, there are many definitions of right view. In fact, it's why I like this particular sutra or sutta, because these are 16 different ways of having right view. And I think to cling to or to embrace only one of these as the actual right view might miss what it means to have right view. Um, but I do just want to clarify that in some dictionary definitions of right view, what right view means is this 
abandoning the view that I am. And this, this idea that the sutra calls abandoning or, or rooting out the conceit that I am. Yes, this is talking about anatta or anatman, the idea of no self. But it's a very particular articulation of that idea. And it's this idea of, well, the conceit, and you can say it to yourself, I am. And, you know, I think I am. <laughs> you probably think you are as well. And by that we mean being, being you, being me. And so part of the deeper practice of right view and what does right view mean, even in this first section, we find out that it does have a lot to do with abandoning attraction, abandoning aversion, and ultimately abandoning the conceit or the view that this is happening or being experienced by me versus in a way just being an experience that is happening. So it's about kind of owning the experience as I am versus a kind of just having the experience of being in that sense. So that is this sort of this idea there and then making it very clear that that is the abandoning of ignorance, but this is avidya, the big ignorance. And by doing this, by abandoning the underlying tendency to attraction, abolishing the underlying tendency to aversion, and rooting out the underlying tendency to the view that I am, the abandoning of ignorance and an arousing of the true knowledge. And the noble disciple makes here and now makes an end of suffering. And that, of course, is the good news or the message of the Dharma is that one can end suffering right here and right now. In that way, too, a noble disciple is one of right view, whose view is straight, who has unwavering confidence in the Dharma and has arrived at this true Dharma. The bhikshus delighted and rejoiced in the Venerable Sariputra's words, but then they asked him a further question. But friend... Might there be another way in which a noble disciple is one of right view? And Sariputra says, there might be friends. <laughs> he says, when friends, a noble disciple understands nutriment, the origin of nutriment, the cessation of nutriment, and the way leading to the cessation of nutriment. In that way, they are one of right view whose view is straight, who has arrived at this true dharma. And you, of course, you have to love a good sutra, or you have to love sutras because you might be wondering, but what is nutriment? What does Sariputra mean by nutriment? Well, and what is nutriment? What is the origin of nutriment? What is the cessation of nutriment? And what is the way leading to the cessation of nutriment? There are four kinds of nutriment for the maintenance of beings that already have come to be and for the support of those beings about to come to be. What are these four nutriments? They are physical food as nutriment, 
gross or subtle, contact as the second, samskara or mental conditionings as the third, and consciousness, vinyana, as the fourth. With the arising of craving, there is the arising of nutriment. With the cessation of craving, there is the cessation of nutriment. The way leading to the cessation of nutriment is just this noble eightfold path. That is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. When a noble disciple has thus understood nutriment, the origin of nutriment, the cessation of nutriment, and the way leading to the cessation of nutriment, they entirely abandon the underlying tendency to attraction, they abolish the underlying tendency to aversion, they root out the underlying tendency to the view and the conceit, I am. And by abandoning ignorance and arousing true knowledge, they here and now make an end of suffering. In that way, too, a noble disciple is one of right view, whose view is straight, who has unwavering confidence in the Dharma and has arrived at this true Dharma. So that's the end of this second, which is about nutriment. And so, again, this is an older Buddhist idea that talks about these four, um, uh, sometimes ahara, it's A-H-A-R-A, -A, I think, in, in English, this Pali-Sanskrit word, ahara. Um, it is also sometimes translated as sustenance. So we are literally talking about um, nutriment, or sustenance for the maintenance. What does it say? It actually says for the maintenance of beings that have already come to be or for those beings about to come to be, meaning kind of like in utero fetuses in that way. And these four, again, are food, which is what you would probably think of when you hear sustenance or nutriment. The second one is contact, sparsha, and this is literally contact between sensory organs and sensory objects, right? So any kind of sensation. The third is samskara or conditionings, mental conditionings, the fourth of the five aggregates. And then the fourth nutriment is consciousness. And it's kind of an interesting Buddhist thing to, th to think of thinking to think of consciousness as a form of sustenance, to think of it as a form of, of nutriment. It's interesting to think of mental conditionings as nutriment. It's interesting to think of just contact as nutriment. And then, of course, we think about food as sustenance. And the reason why I've kind of mentioned a couple times now that this is kind of an earlier Buddhist teaching it seems like, especially when we're talking about the cessation of nutriment, it does seem like we are moving towards a state in which we are no longer eating. 
And whether, <clears throat> you know, I've been trying to actually dig a little deeper into nutriment and or ahara, and I can't really find if they were talking or if the Buddha was talking about like ceasing eating altogether or is it sort of more about when one is in retreat when one when one is in meditation when one is in deep deep states of concentration or samadhi in that way is the idea that there is a cessation or a transcendence of needing food in those moments <clears throat> excuse me of needing sensual sensory contact of needing conditioning in that way or even needing to think the cessation of consciousness the cessation of samskara or conditioning and even the cessation of contact those three forms of nutriment are discussed a lot within the realm of meditation where actually there is a severance of contact between the sensory organs and sensory objects this is what brings about extreme states of stillness eventually bringing about what would be called the the formless realm of nothingness that comes about through no contact no conditioning no consciousness and yeah probably no nutriment like food either the real question is is you know you you may be familiar with in india uh, there is a a very similar tradition to Buddhism called uh, Jainism or Jainism. And in the sutras or back in the days of the Buddha, these Jains or Jains, they were referred to as Niganthas. So if you ever hear or see the Niganthas referenced in the Pali suttas, it's actually referring to the Jain tradition. And the Jains or the Jains, as I guess it's uh, properly pronounced, they, as a tradition, strive towards uh, cultivating fasting. They strive towards limiting intake of food to the point where in your old age, you can actually just sort of live off of air and water in a way. So that's kind of a very extreme form of what we're talking about right now regarding cessation of nutriment. And it's not entirely clear to me how close the early Buddhist tradition was to the Niganthas or to the Jains in this way. I'm not exactly sure if they were, they were moving towards giving up food altogether or not. So this is an interesting one. Um, uh, again, this is the second one, and it's here that uh, Sariputra introduces the Noble Eightfold Path explicitly, where he says that the, the way or the path leading to the cessation of nutriment is the Noble Eightfold Path beginning with right view. Okay, I'm going to move on to the third. The third example of right view that Sariputra gives is this. Um, good friend, the bhikshus delighted and rejoiced in the Venerable Sariputra's words. Then they asked him a further question. But friend, might there be another way in which a noble disciple is one of right view, one whose view is straight, one who has arrived at this true dharma? There might be, friends. 
When, friends, a noble disciple understands dukkha, suffering, the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the way leading to the cessation of suffering, in that way, they are one of right view, one whose view is straight, one who has unwavering confidence in the Dharma and has arrived at this true Dharma. So this section is about the Four Noble Truths, and of course, what constitutes right view in this case is understanding the Four Noble Truths. And what is suffering, Sariputra? Well, what is the origin of suffering? What is the cessation of suffering? And what is the way leading to the cessation of suffering? Well, Sariputra will tell you. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Not to obtain what one wants is suffering. In short, the five aggregates affected by clinging are suffering. This is called suffering. And what is the origin of that suffering? It is craving, which brings renewal of being, is accompanied by delight and lust and delights in this and that. That is craving for sensual pleasures, craving for being, and craving for not being. This is called the origin of suffering. And what is the cessation of suffering? It is the remainderless fading away and ceasing, the giving up, relinquishing, letting go, and rejecting of that very same craving. This is called the cessation of suffering. And what is the way leading to the cessation of suffering? You guessed it. It is just this noble eightfold path. That is, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. This is called the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And when a noble disciple has understood suffering, the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the way leading to the cessation of suffering, then they entirely abandon the underlying tendency to attraction, they abolish the underlying tendency to aversion, they root out the underlying tendency to the view and the conceit, I am. And by abandoning ignorance and arousing true knowledge, they here and now make an end of suffering. And that is another way that a noble disciple is one of right view. Okay, so that's the third. And of course, understanding the noble eight, or sorry, understanding the four noble truths, understanding suffering the origin of suffering and the cessation of suffering and the way leading to the cessation of suffering, that is right view. And that is also another kind of standard dictionary definition of right view, which is understanding this world in terms of the Four Noble Truths.
the next 12 sections are actually the 12 link chain of causation, the, the 12 link chain of dependent origination, the 12 links of pratitya samutpata. So, and if you're not familiar with those, I'll run through them real quick. We will begin, this sutra begins with aging and death. And next birth, then being, or bhava, clinging, craving, sensation, contact, the sixfold sense bases, nama rupa, or name and form, consciousness, samskara, or conditioning, and then ignorance. So those are the next 12, and so I'm actually going to talk about all of them kind of in one, in one go, and then we just have one other last section at the end that's very interesting. And so if you're not familiar with the 12-link chain of causation, I would highly recommend that you um, probably read in the long discourses of the Buddha, that is the Diga Nikaya, there is the uh, the Mahanidana Sutta, the Great Discourse on Origination. I would highly recommend that you read that because that is sort of the actual sutra that talks about the, uh, the idea of dependent origination. But that is what's spoken about here. So each of these 12 individually can, and in the sense of the sutra, do constitute right view. So if you understand aging and death, the origin of aging and death, the cessation of aging and death, and the way leading to the cessation of aging and death, that's right view, right? Now, well, I'll read the aging and death one so that you get a, an idea of how this goes, but then we're not going to read anymore. I promise. Ha, ha, ha. So... The aging and death section begins, Good friend! The bhikshu is delighted and rejoiced in the Venerable Shariputra's words. Then they asked him a further question. But friend, might there be another way in which a noble disciple is one of right view? There might be friends. When friends, a noble disciple understands jaramarana, aging and death. The origin of aging and death. The cessation of aging and death and the way leading to the cessation of aging and death, in that way they are one of right view. And what is aging and death, the origin of aging and death, the cessation of aging and death, and the way leading to the cessation of aging and death? The aging of beings in the various orders of beings, their old age, brokenness of teeth, grayness of hair, wrinkling of skin, decline of life, Weakness of faculties. This is called aging. The passing of beings out of the various orders of beings, their passing away, dissolution, disappearance, dying, completion of time, dissolution of the aggregates, the laying down of the body. This is called death. So, this aging and this death are what is called jaramarana, aging and death. With the arising of birth, there is the arising of aging and death. With the cessation of birth, there is the cessation of aging and death. 
The way leading to the cessation of aging and death is just this noble eightfold path. When a noble disciple has thus understood aging and death, the origin of aging and death, the cessation of aging and death, and the way leading to the cessation of aging and death, they here and now make an end of suffering. In that way, too, a noble disciple is one of right view. So that's how that um, aging and death section reads. <clears throat> but you may have noticed that that understanding aging and death, having right view, shall we say, about aging and death, entails that one understand the origin of aging and death. And this is what we mean by the dependent origination of things. And so aging and death is dependent upon birth. And so if you've never studied the 12 link chain of causation before, if you've never studied dependent origination and pratitya samutpatta, there's a few different ways to understand it, but it's actually, there's a very simple way to understand it. It's the simplest way to understand it. And it's kind of where you should start. And it is this, the idea of getting old and dying. The sutra says that jara marana, old age and death, the origin of it is birth. And the idea here is, is only things that are born get old and die. If there is nothing born, there is nothing to get old and to die. That is the teaching, or at least the basic teaching of dependent origination. You cannot have a death event without a birth event. If you have a birth event, you will have a death event. They go hand in hand. And that is the very idea of dependent co-origination. You cannot have one of these without the other. In fact, it just doesn't even make any sense. The very idea of birth has built into it the idea of death as a concept, as an idea, and as a reality. So from this point on, each of these... So, for example, we were reading the section on aging and death, but it mentioned that the origin of aging and death is birth. Well, when the bhikkhus asked Sariputra, friend, is there another way that a noble disciple is one of right view? Sariputra says, when, friends, a noble disciple understands birth, jati, the origin of birth, the cessation of birth and the way leading to the cessation of birth, in that way they are one of right view. And what is birth? What is the origin of birth? What is the cessation of birth? What is the way leading to the cessation of birth? The birth of beings in the various orders of beings. They're coming to birth, precipitation in a womb, generation, manifestation of the aggregates, obtaining the basis for contact. This is all called birth. With the arising of being, bhava, there is the arising of birth. With the cessation of being, bhava, there is the cessation of birth. 
And the way leading to the cessation of birth is just this noble eightfold path. And when a noble disciple has thus understood birth, the origin of birth, the cessation of birth, and the way leading to the cessation of birth, <clears throat> they here and now make an end of suffering. So that's the next link in the chain, and it says that in order for there to be a birthing event, there must be a being, a bhava. And this word bhava means essence. Originally, this idea of bhava sort of referred to a, a um, I guess, kind of a fetus, or it was the idea of a conception event. So you actually had a kind of an embryo, and then that embryo, that essence, that bhava, is what is birthed and then what dies. And so the idea is, is that if there was no bhava, if there was no essence, if there was no thing, basically, there would be no birth. Because if there's, you know, you can imagine if there is so nothing, like I have nothing in my hand, the question of where it came from is irrelevant because there's nothing in my hand, so there's no birth and there's no destruction or death of that thing because there is no thing. So there's just this subtle link going on. It's why they call it the 12 link chain that from one idea to the next to the next. And so if you did not have a conception event or you did not have an embryo or even if you just don't have any being there, there is nothing to be born and therefore nothing to die. And so that is the next link in the chain. The bhikkhus ask, Sariputra, good friend, might there be another way that a noble disciple is one of right view? There might be, friends. And when, friends, a noble, a noble disciple understands bhava, understands that being, the origin of bhava, the origin of being, the cessation of being, and the way leading to the cessation of being, in that way, they are one of right view. And what is bhava? What is being? What is the origin of being, the cessation of being, and the way leading to the cessation of being? There are these three kinds of being. Beings in the kamadatu, or the realm of desire. Being in the realm of pure form, the rupadatu and beings in the immaterial form, the arupadatu. With the arising of clinging, there is the arising of being. With the cessation of, be of clinging, there is the cessation of being. And the way leading to the cessation of being is just this noble eightfold path. And when a noble disciple has thus understood being, the origin of being, the cessation of being, and the way leading to the cessation of being, they here and now make an end of suffering. So there we find out that the origin, the dependent cause, if you will, of being is clinging, upadana. 
of course, upadana or clinging, you know, that's sort of the big problem. As the Buddha pointed out, upadana or clinging is, you know, it's the root cause of suffering. It's the cause of being in this way. And so it's interesting that clinging is the dependent origin or the originating cause for bhava or being. And there's two ways to understand that. One is a more kind of an, an original, more um, kind of just a more basic idea of clinging leading to being. And if you remember, I just said that being could be a conception event. Well, the idea is, is that you cannot have a conception event. You cannot have a impregnation or you cannot have the, the arising of a being without clinging. And in the original sense, they literally meant a man and woman clinging to each other so intensely that it brings about another being. But there's a more subtle metaphysical way in which upadana or clinging brings about being. And it's very subtle and I don't actually think I should because I'm already pushing an hour on this talk already. So I shouldn't really go down that road, but I just want you to know or think about a interesting subtle relationship between upadana or clinging and then being. Of there even being something there, you one needs to be attached to it in some way. In other words, those things that we are not attached to, the millions of billions of infinite myriads of things that we are currently not thinking about or not attached to or not aware of or anything like that, just completely not, we are not clinging to those and so they are not. <laughs> they, I can't even think of it because I'm not clinging to those things. But as soon as I settle my mind on something, I'm now clinging to it and it now be. And as soon as something be, it can have come from somewhere and it can be going somewhere, meaning it can have been born or created and will die or be destroyed. Okay, so then you might, you might be wondering then, what is the origin or cause of clinging? Because that is indeed how the 12 link chain of causation works, is that you should be wondering, well, then what causes the clinging? And indeed, the bhikshus ask Shariputra, is there another way in which a notable disciple is one of right view? There might be, friends. When, friends, a noble disciple understands clinging, the origin and cause of clinging, the cessation of clinging and the way leading to the cessation of clinging, in that way, they are one of right view. And what is clinging? What is the origin of clinging? What is the cessation of clinging? What is the way leading to the cessation of clinging? There are these four kinds of clinging. Clinging to sensual pleasures, clinging to views, drishtis, opinions, views, clinging to rules and observations, or I've heard it translated as rites and rituals. And number four, clinging to a doctrine of the self. 
with the arising of craving, tanha, thirst. There is the, there is the arising of clinging. With the cessation of craving, there is the cessation of clinging. The way leading to the cessation of clinging is just this noble eightfold path. And when a noble disciple has thus understood clinging, the origin of clinging, and the cessation of clinging, and the way leading to the cessation of clinging, they here and now make an end of suffering. So now we have the originating cause of clinging, upadana, attachment. And what, it is, what is the origin of that? What is the cause of that clinging? It is craving, thirst, wanting. And of course, that's an easy leap to make, right? Which is that we usually don't cling to that which we don't want. So the idea is, is that we do cling to that which we want. And so this very wanty, cravy, again, the word in Sanskrit and Pali is tanha, which literally means thirst, a thirsting for sensual pleasures, a thirsting and a craving. And that is the cause of the upadana. The idea being that once we get a hold of it, we don't want to let go because we are afraid of that craving or that wanting. So you might wonder, well, what is the origin or what is the cause of that craving? Well, that's what the bhikshus asked Shariputra and Shariputra says, and, and what is craving? Tanha? What is the origin of this thirsty craviness? What is the cessation of that craving? What is the way leading to the cessation of craving? Well, there are six kinds of craving. Craving for visible forms, to watch something or look at something. Craving for sounds, to hear something. Craving for odors, to smell something. Craving for flavors, to eat something. Craving for tangibles, for something or someone to touch your body. And craving for dharmas mind objects, ideas, thoughts. With the arising of sensation, vedana, there is the arising of craving. With the cessation of sensations, vedana, there is the cessation of craving. The way leading to the cessation of craving is just this, Noble Eightfold Path. And when a noble disciple has thus understood craving, the origin of craving, the cessation of craving, and the way leading to the cessation of craving, they here and now make an end of suffering. So, now we have found out that the origin, the, the dependent origin of wanting and craving is this idea of Vedana. The sutra here translates, translates Vedana as feeling. Feeling feeling is a very standard translation of Vedana. I don't care for that translation for two reasons. In my mind, in my English conditioning, when I hear the word feeling, 
it is either the body and tactility, and when I rub my hand across something, I feel it, or feelings are emotions and are strictly of the mind or the heart-mind. Now, tactility is one form of Vedana, and the emotions of the mind, the heart-mind, that's another kind of sensation or Vedana, but there are six kinds of sensation. There are six Vedana. And so I don't like to use or translate it as feeling because that only kind of, kind of covers two. Whereas what Vedana, what sensation means is the senses of the sensory organs. It's, it's very much about this. In fact, it's very important, I think, to understand that Vedana are not emotional in that way. They're, they're emotions and getting angry over something or jealous about something or the emotions, that all comes after we have sensed something. Sensed it with the eyes, sensed it with the ears, nose, tongue, body, and even with the brain in that way. But sensations, you know, sensations, I also like to translate, um, it's not a translation because it's not what the word means, but I like to interpret Vedana or sensations as reactions to things. We react to things that we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and even think about. And we react either positively where we find it pleasing to look at or pleasing to smell or we react negatively we do not like the way this looks we do not like the way this smells we might also have a neutral sensation which is i don't really have any feelings about it one way or the other so there's three sort of types of sensation in that way negative positive and neutral but it's important to keep in mind that they are talking about sensations of the bodily organs, including the brain. The idea being that we wouldn't develop craving for something if we have never had a sense of it. Meaning, we tend not to crave that which we have never seen, never heard, never smelt, never tasted, never touched, or even never thought about. It, it, it puts it entirely outside the realm. And it's kind of an interesting thought experiment to notice how one feels about that which is inconceivable in that way. So you might be asking yourself at this point, well, then what are the origin? What is the cause? What's with these Vedana or these feelings? And so on to the next section. And what is Vedana? What is sensation? What is the origin of sensation? What is the cessation of sensation? What is the way leading to the cessation of sensation? There are these six classes or kinds of sensation. Sensation born of eye contact. Sensation born of ear contact. Sensation born of nose contact, tongue contact, bodily contact, and sensations born of mind contact. With the arising of sparsha, contact, there is the arising of sensation. With the cessation of contact, 
there is the cessation of sensation, vedana. The way leading to the cessation of sensation is just this noble eightfold path. And when a noble disciple has understood vedana, sensations, the origin of sensations, the cessation of sensations, and the way leading to the cessation of sensation, they here and now make an end of suffering. So that articulates the six sources of sensation, sensations of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and brain in that way. And so you might ask, well, what is the arising of those sensations? From whence the sensations? And as it pointed out, the origin of such sensations is contact. Sparsha. And contact Again, contact is, is, you are now hearing my voice. That is contact. If I were to hit the mute button, I would sever contact. And you wouldn't be able to hear my voice. And if you didn't have contact with my voice now, you could not have a sensation of my voice with your ears. And therefore, you could not have a reaction to that sensation and either be pleased by it, not pleased by it, or neutral towards it. And if you're not neutral, pleased, or unpleased about it in any way, you cannot crave to hear my voice more. And if you're not craving, then you're not attached. And if you're not attached, there's nothing to be there. And if there's nothing to be there, nothing has come from anywhere and nothing is going anywhere. So that's kind of a classic way that one kind of works through the 12-link chain of causation is kind of by reminding yourself going all the way back to the beginning in that way. Um, and what, friends, is contact? What is the origin of that contact? What is the cessation of that contact? And what is the way leading to the cessation of contact? There are these six kinds of contact. Eye contact, Ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind or brain contact. And with the arising of the six-fold sense base, there is the arising of contact. With the cessation of the six-fold sense base, there is the cessation of contact. And the way leading to the cessation of contact is just this noble eightfold path. And when a noble disciple has thus understood contact, the origin of contact, the cessation of contact, and the way leading to the cessation of contact, they here and now make an end of suffering. So contact, the idea of being in contact with something seen or something heard or something smelt or tasted or touched or even something thought about, that contact is dependent upon the six sense bases, what it calls the sad ayatana, the sixfold sense base. And the idea, of course, is, is that if you didn't have ears, I could be talking and talking and talking and talking, and there would be no contact and therefore no sensation of hearing. And so the sixfold sense base is the dependent origin or originating cause of our, 
our contact. The way in which we come into contact with this world is through the sixfold sense bases. And what is the sixfold sense base, Shariputra? What's the origin of the sixfold sense base? What's the cessation of the sixfold sense base? What's the way leading to the cessation of the sixfold sense base? So there are these six sense bases, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind or brain, with the arising of nama rupa, name and form, there is the arising of the sixfold sense base, with the cessation of nama rupa, name and form, there is the cessation of the sixfold sense base. The way leading to the cessation of the sixfold sense base is just this noble eightfold path. And when a noble disciple has thus understood the sixfold sense base, the origin, cessation, and way leading to the cessation of the sixfold sense base, they here and now make an end of suffering. So, the dependent originating cause of these six senses that we have, by which we come into contact with the world and develop sensations and all of that, the dependent originating cause of that is something called nama rupa, name and form. If you have the wisdom publication edition, they translate this as mentality hyphen materiality. And, you know, that's a very literal translation of Nama Rupa. Traditionally, Nama Rupa was more like mind and body, the distinction of mind and body, that which is sort of more metaphysical and of thought versus that which is physical and of the body. So Nama, the mind, and Rupa, the body. But if you actually read the various sutras about Nama Rupa, it's very interesting. It's, it's, it's a little more complicated than just the mind-body complex, as it might be called. What's interesting is if you think about how name and form is the dependent, is the, or I should put it the other way, I guess. The six senses are dependent upon name and form. And what's interesting about this, and again, I know this talk is already going on too long, so I'm not going to try to, uh, you know, go through every piece of this. But the idea is, is that name and form are kind of an interesting little uh, semantic feedback loop where we give something a name based on its form. But that form is related to its name. And you could think of this as a very, very simple classic example is a circle. So a circle is both a shape, a form, and a name. And there's this kind of interesting way in which, you know, to even think about something, it kind of needs to have a name, a descriptor, or at least a shape, a form, something to go on. You know, if I told you, like right now, I love, I love just using audio because I could tell you that I, I have something in my hand, right? But I'm not going to tell you what it looks like, so no form, and I'm not going to tell you its name. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about this thing in my hand? 
that you don't know what it's called or you don't even know what it looks like. The idea is, is that if we don't have names for things or even discernible forms for things, then there can be no perception of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and even thinking because those are actually names. We distinguish that which is seen from that which is heard. And we call sounds one thing and visible forms another thing. And even by calling a vision a vision and a sound a sound, that's nama rupa. So nama rupa, this idea of name and form, as the dependent origin of the sixfold sense base is very, very interesting. You could would almost want name and form to come after the sixfold sense base. But the fact that it is before it is worthy of contemplation. And so what, friends, is Nama Rupa? What's the origin of Nama Rupa? What is the cessation of Nama Rupa? What is the way leading to the cessation of name and form Nama Rupa? Vedana, feeling. Samnya, perception. Samskara, conditioning. Sparsha, contact. And Vijnana, consciousness. These are called Namas. The four great elements and the material form derived from the four great elements these are called rupa, form. So this namas and this rupa, so this name and this form are what are called nama rupa, name and form. With the arising of consciousness, there is the arising of nama rupa. With the cessation of consciousness, there is the cessation of Nama Rupa. The way leading to the cessation of Nama Rupa is just this Noble Eightfold Path. And when a Noble Disciple has thus understood name and form, Nama Rupa, the origin of Nama Rupa, the cessation of Nama Rupa, and the way leading to the cessation of Nama Rupa, they here and now make an end of suffering. So, Sariputra has now told us what is the dependent originating cause of Nama Rupa, name and form. It is consciousness, vijnana. So this vijnana or this consciousness, right? This is a very tricky idea, of course, in Buddhism. It's not exactly the mind. It's not exactly thinking. It's more something closer to awareness a kind of general sense of awareness in that way. But the idea is, is that just for right now, just, just, just for right now, we can say that vijnana is like consciousness. And so the idea is, is that all of this nama rupa, kind of going around the world and dividing things into categories like mental and physical, dividing things into categories of, of giving all these things names. Well, to go around the world giving things names or to discern shapes based on form 
is dependent upon consciousness. In other words, if you had no consciousness, you could not have a naming apparatus, right? No consciousness, there's nothing there to go around naming the things of this world. And if there's nothing going around naming the things of this world, then there's no naming something as a visible form. There is no naming something as an auditory formation. There's no naming anything if there's no consciousness. So if there's no naming anything as the six senses, as products of the six senses, then the idea is that there is no longer any contact. And if there's no longer any contact, there's no more production of sensations to get us all worked up with craving, to get us all attached to things that are born and die. So again, that is a quick go through or going back through the links in the chain, dependent upon this idea of consciousness. And what, friends, is consciousness, vijnana? What is the origin of consciousness, the cessation of consciousness, and the way leading to the cessation of consciousness? So there are actually six kinds of consciousness. And this is why I don't like to necessarily translate vijnana as consciousness, but rather as awareness. The idea is that, and what is awareness? So there are these six kinds of awareness, eye awareness, ear awareness, nose, tongue, body, and mind awareness. And what is it that causes these awarenesses, this consciousness to arise in each of the organs? With the arising of conditioning, samskara, there is the arising of consciousness. And with the cessation of samskara, with the cessation of conditioned thought formations, there is the cessation of consciousness. And the way leading to that cessation of consciousness is just this noble eightfold path. So that one, of course, is this idea that without our mental conditionings, our habits of thought, there would be no consciousness. And so this again is a very interesting Buddhist twist on psychology, consciousness, mind and thought, which is actually that a conditioned form of thinking is the, is the origin of our consciousness. In other words, we are not necessarily thinking freely all the time. We are actually sort of thinking in ruts, thinking in habitual patterns, thinking in conditioned habitual patterns. And those conditioned habitual patterns are called samskara. And it is those samskara that are the dependent origin for our consciousness that can then go around naming things, including sensations of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and so on and so forth. And so it's very interesting to then begin to look in, well, what is the origin of that conditioning? Because if my consciousness and then all of my sensory experiences and all of my likes and dislikes are all originating from this conditioning, 
what's the origin of this conditioning? Well, what are conditionings? What are samskara? What's the origin of samskara? What is the cessation of samskara? And what is the way leading to the cessation of samskara? There are these three kinds of conditionings. Bodily conditioning, verbal conditioning, and mental conditioning. And with the arising of avidya, ignorance, there is the arising of these conditionings. With the cessation of ignorance, there is the cessation of conditioning. And the way leading to the cessation of conditioning is just this Noble Eightfold Path. So there we have it, friends. We have come all the way to the 12th link in the chain. This is the cause of conditioning, which causes our consciousness, which causes our perception in terms of sensory organs and all of that. It is all based upon and originates from avidya ignorance. This is the teaching of Buddhism, that we aren't entirely clear what's going on here, and so we're a little confused, a little deluded, and so we are ignorant. And so, what is avidya? What is ignorance? What's the origin of ignorance, the cessation of ignorance, and the way leading to the cessation of ignorance? Not knowing about suffering not knowing about the origin of suffering, not knowing about the cessation of suffering, not knowing about the way that leads to the cessation of suffering. That's called ignorance. And with the arising of the taints, asava, with the arising of the taints, there is the arising of ignorance. With the cessation of the taints, there is the cessation of ignorance. And the way leading to the cessation of ignorance is just this noble eightfold path. So, that ends the sort of 12 links of the chain of causation. But we still have one more, which is a kind of an interesting twist in terms of this presentation of the 12 link chain of causation, which is that we are given... Well, first of all, we are given this beautiful definition of ignorance, right? Which is, ignorance is not knowing about suffering. Not knowing about the origin of suffering, not knowing about the cessation of suffering, or the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So that's the Four Noble Truths, which Sariputra covered in one of the earlier sections. But we are also given here this sort of the arising of ignorance out of this asava, the taints. So this is another idea that I don't talk about often. It doesn't come up all the time. And that is this idea of the asava or the, the taints. And so no better way to find out about it than from Sariputra. And what are the taints? What are the asava? What's the origin of the taints? What's the cessation of the taints? And what is the way leading to the cessation of the taints? There are these three taints. The taint of sensual desire, the taint of being, and the taint of ignorance. 
with the arising of ignorance, there is the arising of the taints. With the cessation of ignorance, there is the cessation of the taints. And the way leading to the cessation of the taints is just this noble eightfold path. And when a noble disciple has thus understood asava, the taints, the origin of the taints, the cessation of the taints, and the way leading to the cessation of the taints, they entirely abandon the underlying tendency to attraction. They abolish the underlying tendency to aversion. They root out the underlying tendency to the view and conceit, I am. And by abandoning ignorance and arousing true knowledge, they here and now make an end of suffering. In that way too, a noble disciple is one of right view, whose view is straight, who has unwavering confidence in the Dharma and has arrived at this true Dharma. And that's what the Venerable Sariputra said, and the bhikkhus were delighted in the Venerable Sariputra's words. Um, all right, and so that's just about it. If you didn't notice, there was sort of a kind of an interesting little um, circular feedback loop there where the origin of ignorance are the taints, but the origin of the taints is ignorance, and even one of the taints is ignorance, the other one being uh, kama, K-M-M-A, the sensual desire, the desire to see things and hear things and smell, taste, and touch things, right? Think about things. That's the taint of sensual desire. The taint of being has to do with that conceit, I am, and that is this being tainted with the idea that one exists in a way, that is the taint of being. And then finally, the taint of ignorance, which has already been defined as not understanding suffering, the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And on that note of the way leading to the cessation of suffering, I will conclude this talk on right view, samya drishti. This will be the first installment in an eight-part series on the Noble Eightfold Path, where we will look at a different sutra highlighting each of the steps on the path. I hope that you have enjoyed this. I apologize if it was just too much, too fast. I would love to hear from you at some point in the comments or otherwise. Until then, have a beautiful day. Thank you.